We continue in our Impact World series through the book of Acts. I invite you to open to Acts chapter 25. We will read from from verse 13 on together. We'll be looking today at chapters 25 and 26 together, really as one passage. Uh, But we'll begin by reading from Acts 25. Beginning with verse 13, Dr. Luke writes, A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it's It's not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Father, as we open your word together today, we are conscious of the fact that we're not like you. Lord, we confess that we are sinners. We confess that even in our best moments, there's shade in our in our righteousness. We acknowledge what Isaiah spoke, that even our best, even our very best version of righteousness is like filthy rags before a holy God. And yet, Lord, You have told us that if we confess our sins, that You are faithful and just And You forgive us our sins and cleanse us from the unrighteousness within. 
Father, we fall upon your mercy and your grace, recognizing that nobody can be justified by the law. Nobody can be made right with you through good deeds. That's not enough to remove the stain of sin. And so we thank you, Father, from the bottom of our hearts that you demonstrated your own love for us and that while we were still sinners far from you, enemies not seeking you, Christ died for us. Lord, I pray even as we are gathered and as we begin this study time, knowing that in this room we have a mixture, we always have a mixture of believers and unbelievers, disciples and doubters, even many, Lord, who unquestionably have spent a lifetime in church doing the religious thing, but maybe have not come through the wicked gate, have not encountered Jesus personally. Father, I pray that your spirit would fall heavy on us today. That those who do not know Jesus would be convicted about the truth of the gospel. That you would speak to them and that they would not harden their hearts if they hear your voice. Father, I pray for those who do know Jesus, who are your children and yet have been complacent, have not taken seriously the gospel and the mission that you have given to us, that you would move to convict us, to press us forward, to light a fire in us. Father, as we contemplate the deep, deep love of Jesus, how can we do anything else but live for you? Lord, I pray for those who as they hear this message today will identify and say, this, this is so true. And this is what I'm seeking to do every day. But that they would be encouraged by your word. Encouraged to stay the course, to fan the flame, to be ever more diligent, to be invested with love in those around them. Lord, remind us that it's Jesus that matters. He's not up for election. Protect us from the disunity, the disharmony that comes when we get too caught up in prioritizing the things of this world over the things of your kingdom. Help us to take our convictions, our biblical convictions, into the voting booth with us. But help us never, ever, to fall prey to the deception that whoever wins the election, if it's not who we choose, is somehow not of your will. Remind us of your sovereignty. Cause us to be thankful in all things at all times seeing even the greatest of tribulations as pure joy as they shape us to make us more like Christ. Do that now in this time of study together, Lord, and accept our focus on your word as 
sanctified, holy worship offered to you with clean hands and a pure heart. These things we pray in the name of your Son who gave himself for us and by the power of your Spirit indwelling us. Amen. Well, maybe some of you have watched the debate. Raise your hands if you've watched any of the presidential debates. Any of you? Some of you? Yeah. Any of you watched the, the first debate? I'm really sorry for you. I pray that may God have mercy on us all. You know, I often marvel as I see things like these debates, whether these or, or others. I'm sometimes just kind of astonished at how often the candidates seem to not anticipate what appear to be kind of obvious questions. I'm pretty sure if you're doing an interview as a politician that somebody's going to ask you about your policy. I'm just guessing. They're probably going to ask you about those controversial things that people are talking about in the news. They're probably going to talk to you about your, your record or allegations or, or any of these things. I'm constantly just amazed at how often they kind of run away from the issues. I, a lot of times I'll, I'll imagine how I might answer those questions if it were me. Maybe you do the same thing. It's like, man, if, if I were in that situation, I would want to try to say this. Here's how I might want to approach that. Now, certainly they've been coached up on a lot of these things, but it is a very precarious, delicate position to be in when you're a, a prominent person and you're out in front of people and you're speaking and everybody puts all this weight on your words well, that delicate and precarious kind of situation is also a tremendous opportunity to be a witness for Christ. And that's exactly what we see here in chapters 25 and 26 with the Apostle Paul. He's doing what the Lord said he would do in Acts 9.15 and, and what the Lord said that his early disciples would do and, and ultimately all of us as disciples would do in Matthew 10.18. He's brought before governors and kings. And Paul uses this unpleasant opportunity to bear witness to those who are accusing him. Not only to those who are accusing him, but to those who are sitting in judgment of him. Those who are powerful and wealthy and could bring great harm to him if they don't like what he says. But Paul's ready. And he sees this as an opportunity. Oh, that we might do the same. Let's continue looking at how Paul responds here in Acts chapter 26. We see uh, Luke setting the stage in chapter 25. Felix, who was the previous governor, had, had, uh, had Paul there following the accusations and the, the mob attack of the Jewish leaders and Felix could not find reason to charge him, but trying to appease the Jews, he kept him there, and he kept hoping that if he kept bringing him back in and sending him back to prison and bringing him back in, he gave him some freedom, but, but he kept hoping he'd get a bribe out of him. Well, that would settle the matter, wouldn't it? Now I get a bribe, you get off, and I can dismiss you as guilty without having to think about it. Felix kept him there for two years without actually 
finishing the trial or bringing any new charges. And Felix, who was married to a Jewish woman and understood the Jews, he had been there and, and knew how, how the culture went, though he wasn't Jewish himself, left Paul there, again, to appease the Jews. He was removed for his malfeasance by Rome. He didn't do a great job. Festus, on the other hand, comes in. And Festus, we don't know a whole lot about. We don't know anything about him before chapter 25 and 26 here. But as he comes in, he'll only spend a couple of years ruling. He'll die of a fever later on. But the, uh, the historian Josephus recognizes him as a fair-minded judge. He's a governor who, while he is not pro-Christian by any stretch, he focuses on the law. And he's known to be fair. Now, Festus doesn't know anything. He never married, so he certainly didn't marry a Jewish woman. He just got there. He really doesn't understand the Jewish culture. So when they bring these charges of sedition against Paul, and he hears them bringing up religious fine points in his mind, talking about this dead guy, Jesus, that Paul says is alive, Festus is a little taken aback. I'm not quite sure what to do with this guy. He clearly hasn't done anything deserving death, but much like Pilate did with Jesus, if I let him go, even though I know he's not guilty of anything against Rome, if I let him go, we could have an uprising. We could have a real breach of the Pax Romana, and then I'm going to be in trouble. We can't really have that. Luckily for him, being new to the scene here in Judea, King Agrippa, the Jewish client king, uh, Agrippa and his sister Bernice, it's a very weird situation. Historians tell us that they were sort of incestuous lovers. They had this thing going on for you younger kids. What that means is that he was married to his sister, essentially. Kind of a weird situation. She had multiple failed marriages, came to, this, uh, to, to live with her brother in this unwholesome thing. As a Jew, that's particularly, it's maybe not a big deal for the Romans. They don't really care that much. It's a huge deal for the Jews because God specifically condemns such relations. But this Jewish king under Roman power rules essentially under, semi-parallel to, but under Festus. He comes to meet Festus. He's not coming for Paul. He's coming with great pomp and circumstance to to have his regal meeting with this governor to show him how great I am as king. How pleased Rome should be with me. It's more of a social meeting and a social position, really. And as Agrippa and Bernice encounter Festus, he says, listen, I'm glad you're here because I've got this Jewish problem. And I don't know what to do about it, so I'm hoping you will. Now, in all likelihood, J. Vernon McGee says he's convinced that Festus, uh, that uh, Agrippa already was aware of Paul and familiar with Paul, but had not met Paul. And so he wanted to be able to see what, the, what all the hubbub was about. Write that word down, hubbub. I want to use that whenever I can. Okay. He wanted to see what the hubbub was about. He gets there. He gets to meet him. That's what we're going to read now in chapter 26. 
verse 1, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you're well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? So as Paul is talking to Agrippa, he's able to talk to him as a Jewish man. Agrippa knows the law and the prophets. Agrippa knows what's going on. So when Paul says, look, I'm here for the same things that our fathers believed. There's nothing new in what I'm saying. Why should this be shocking to you? He is specifically drawing on this, this relationship, this connection, through Jewish faith, if you can say that about a man living in an ungodly relationship with his sister, but, but through Agrippa's understanding of and at least nominal allegiance to God's law, Paul then draws him in, gets his attention. Verse 9, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went, up, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Now, don't miss that. As Paul says this, he's brought it up before, he's pointing out, I didn't go as a rogue. I was doing this. They knew full well what I was doing. They were involved with this. These people know me. And they approved of me until I changed. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. Verse eleven or verse thirteen. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic. The, the language spoken by Jews of the place. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, to resist the prompting of the Spirit. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. 
I am sending you to them. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Now this should be the message that every Jew would have declared straight along, even before Jesus had his earthly ministry. That should have been the kingdom message. That was what John preached before Jesus began his earthly ministry. As Paul is saying these things, he is not only identifying with what has always been the mission of God's people to be the light to unbelievers, the the, uh, role of Israel as God's chosen people, the vessel through which God gave his word and gave an opportunity to have a relationship with him, they were always to be a light to the nations. No different with the church. As Paul, who would not have been there when Jesus spoke in in Acts 1.8, as Paul gives his story here, he echoes the very words of Jesus in Acts 1.8 when he said, you will receive power from on high, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, the surrounding area, and even to the ends of the earth. And we see Paul here saying, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Verse 20, first to those in Damascus, where he was. Then he goes back to what Jesus says in in Acts 1.8. Whether Paul is doing this intentionally or the Spirit is doing it through him, the point is still, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea. And then to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth, as it were. I preach that they should repent, turn to God, demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. There's nothing here that the Jewish leaders or Agrippa could argue with. That's why some Jews seized me, he says in verse 21. They couldn't argue with this, and yet this is why they seized me in the temple, in the temple courts, and tried to kill me. Verse 22, but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here. And I testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Now, he connects the dots. This is really important. The church needs to see this. This is why the book of Hebrews was written. This is the purpose of Paul's letter to the Romans. And we see it in a number of places. Paul connects the dots. Here's what God has always said from the dawn of time. And here's how it culminates in Christ. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Verse 23, that the Messiah, whom Paul knows as Christ, that the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. That sounds an awful lot like the things that we talk about at Christmas time, right? The light to the Gentiles. This declaration that Jesus would bring a new world order, if I can use that term. 
a new way of relating to God, a new way of living. For you Switchfoot fans, a new way to be human. Jesus is the light. He is the Messiah that the prophets and Moses said would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead, bringing the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Okay, so we're all caught up here with what Paul says. Now, this becomes a point of contention for Festus, who's not Jewish. So when he says these things, he's like, Paul, are you nuts? You can't believe this stuff. Well, every Jew in the room believes this stuff. They just don't believe it's Jesus. Except maybe if there's some Sadducees, because they were kind of they were kind of sketchy. You know, they were a little more secular, very religious. They didn't believe in the supernatural things of the Bible, so they dismissed it all. But we'll discount them. Verse 24, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Uh, just a little side note for you students, those of you who are still in school. Uh, Paul is not saying that if you go to school and you do your homework, you'll go crazy, even if it feels like it. But he's saying, you've got so much in your brain that it's burning you up and you can't think straight. Sort of a, a beautiful mind sort of scenario. Paul says in verse 25, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. Why? Because he gets it. It's not new. None of this is new to Agrippa. I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. In other words, it wasn't hidden. It wasn't in secret. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Now, this is kind of a ticklish thing, right? Paul, the prisoner, is standing before the governor and the king. And he confronts, you can't even believe it. In the middle of this, he lays out truth that the king can't argue with, because if he does, now the Jews are going to turn against him. If he says, I don't really believe that stuff, well, they're going to turn against him. They already don't like him, because he's not living right. But if he outright denies the Jewish faith, that's a problem. But if he accepts what Paul's saying, that Jesus is the culmination, that's a problem. Reminds me a lot of how Jesus answered questions. But Paul doesn't run from it. He runs to it. He runs to the battle. And he does it in a respectful and gentle way. He says, King, King, my guy, I know you believe the prophets, don't you? Come on, you know. Tell me, King, you believe. Agrippa's response. <laughs> Verse 28, then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think? That in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? See, it's not lost on him. He's not seeing Paul as just, you know, being another Jew. He knows that he's different as a follower of the way, the Nazarene sect, as its detractors would call it. He recognizes that he is a Christ follower, so all of these Jewish things that he's saying culminate in Christ. Agrippa's not missing that. Some of you may remember the hymn, or if you have a, a King James version, you may see that he says, you, you almost persuade me. I'm, I'm almost persuaded. This is probably a better rendering in the English of, of what that Greek conveys. But, but Agrippa, he recognizes that he's on the brink of conversion. 
Much like Felix, when Paul preached to him, became convicted and afraid and said, nope, I'm not dealing with this. I'll deal with it when it's convenient, and the devil makes sure it's never convenient. And Agrippa says, I can see we're at a decision point, and I ain't going for it. But Paul doesn't fail to bring the conversation to that place. 29, I think this is really the climax, 28 and 29, really the climax of the story. Paul replied, this is the greatest response. Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Now, a couple of points here before we get into the the real meat of things. A couple of things to notice. Agrippa, after hearing this, after hearing Paul's unbelievable response to him, unbelievable in that it remains confrontational and yet respectful and gentle, but it's clearly in its very tenor motivated by love. King, I pray to God on your behalf that even if you don't believe me today, that whether it's a short time or a long time, that you and everybody who hears me may become just as I am, a slave to Christ. Not a slave to any man, not these chains, but that you might find real life in Jesus. The king gets up. Do you get the feeling that he's dumbfounded? He doesn't say anything. At least it's not recorded. He gets up and they, and they leave, but they don't say, Paul, how dare you? They don't overtly reject it. They don't say, man, Paul, is, you know, he's really stirring up trouble. You better deal with him. No, he says, he hasn't done anything deserving of death. He hasn't violated the law. He's not wrong. And yet, even in knowing that he's not wrong, still don't believe still don't receive that gospel. Before we go any farther, I just got to stop knowing that it is inevitable when we have this many people gathered in a room and this many people online watching that, that many who are here may not have this life-giving, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And I would be remiss if I didn't pause and just say, listen, you can, you can be in church your whole life. You can listen to every sermon I or anybody else has ever preached and nod your head and say amen and not confess Jesus from your heart. Not know him personally. It's not a matter of how many sermons you hear or even if you teach Sunday school or even if you're preaching sermons. There are people preaching this morning around our country and around the world who do not know Jesus Christ. It breaks my heart. 
Guys, apart from Jesus, every single person stands condemned already. Facing eternal death because we are separated from the giver of life. There is only one way to have a relationship with God. And apart from a relationship with God, you are and will always be spiritually dead. Sin separates us from the source of life. And the only way to overcome that is Jesus. Your sin can't be overcome or made up for or paid for or removed by your good deeds, by your religiousness, by going to church or writing a check to a missionary. None of those things are bad. Those things are good. But not in themselves. They're worthless. They're dead acts in themselves apart from the Spirit of God. Let me tell you today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as the Jews did in the rebellion. Don't harden your hearts, but receive the life that Jesus offers. You can't get rid of your sin by being good or going to church. But paying the price for your sin and mine, Jesus, who had no sin of his own, became sin for us. And he died on that cross in our place. And he was raised to life to demonstrate that God accepted the sacrifice. The check cleared. And anyone, anyone and everyone who trusts in Christ alone has eternal life. Life that starts now and never, ever ends. It lasts forever. Life abundant, free, full, and overflowing. Doesn't mean life's going to be a bowl of cherries and you're going to get to drive that fancy car and have the great house and, and get that girl to marry you. None of that stuff happens because you receive Christ. If it happens, that's God's will and that's great. But God doesn't promise us a bed of roses. His followers receive a lot of thorns. But man, it's short-term suffering for long-term glory. It's not even worth comparing to what God has in store for us. So if this is new to you, or it's not new, but it's new to your heart, and you feel God telling you, hey, you know what? You've been shutting me out. You've heard the words. You've sung the songs. You maybe even memorized the verses, but you haven't surrendered yourself to me. Do it now. Don't wait. Lord, I'm yours. Save me. I know I'm not right. I know I have sin and it separates me from you. And I'm trusting that Jesus is my hope. When we believe in our hearts that Jesus is who he says he is. And from that believing heart we confess openly and outwardly that Jesus is our Lord and our Master. Romans tells us we will be saved. If that's something that you are feeling moved to do today, see me when we get done here. If for some reason you don't see me when you get done here, text me, call me, knock on my door, send smoke signals or carrier pigeons, but get a hold of me so we can talk because I want to introduce you to him and I want to help you know how to take next steps. 
If you don't think you can talk to me, find almost anybody in this room who knows Jesus. They can tell you. By the time we get done here today, my hope and my prayer is that all of us will recognize the importance of this. What we see here with Paul is true for all of us. And it's the core reality of the message today. The core reality is this. When we take the gospel seriously, we see every moment through the lens of our mission. When we take the gospel seriously, we see every moment through the lens of our mission. If you're a Christ follower, say this with me. I want you to, I want you to get this in your mind and in your heart. This is what we see in the big picture of this passage with Paul. It's the application that, that hits us right square between the eyes. Say it with me. When we take the gospel seriously, we see every moment through the lens of mission. Keith mentioned earlier, I, become, I, I start my mission when I get up in the morning. This is the mission. Every moment of every day, I live as an ambassador of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. It's as if God is making his appeal to the world through us. If you are in Christ, your citizenship has changed. You are no longer primarily an American or a Costa Rican or a Jew or a Gentile or a male or a female, black, white, Hispanic. You pick it. You're not primarily any of those identities. You are primarily, first and foremost, a child of the living God by His grace through faith in Christ. That changes everything. And now, as a citizen of that kingdom, as a child of the King of all kings, you live as a representative, an ambassador, to reflect the reality of, of Christ through the relationships that He gives to you. When we take the gospel seriously, we see every moment through the lens of our mission. Notice this. We can learn from Paul's example that every circumstance of life affords an opportunity to carry out our mission when we are purposeful, prepared, perceptive, personal, and proactive. Every circumstance of life, whatever it is, whether you're at work, at play, whether you're a, a middle school student, a, a, a college student, you're a, a mother, a father, a single, a retired person, whatever your lot in life, whatever your position in life, every circumstance of life affords an opportunity to carry out our mission when we are purposeful, prepared, perceptive, personal, and proactive. Now, each one of us has opportunities all the time. Every moment of every day. And sometimes they're unpleasant. Paul, in his particular situation here, has been falsely imprisoned for more than two years now without having real charges brought, without having evidence presented. He's just sitting there. You know what he's doing while he's sitting there? He's telling everybody he can, he can about Jesus. Guard bringing dinner? Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the bread of life. Guard trying to protect him. Hey, let me tell you about who can protect you from eternal damnation. He gets to go before Festus, and he doesn't spend a lot of time. We don't have a record here that says when he speaks to Festus. We saw this in the first part of the chapter last week. 
When he speaks to Festus, he just says, I didn't do anything that they're saying that I did. And that's pretty much the defense. God did not give him the opportunity there to speak to Festus the same way because Festus didn't get it. So God sees fit to bring Agrippa, who is ungodly, wretchedly ungodly, not even trying to live according to the law like the Jews are. The Jews are zealous for the law, but they lack power because they don't know the giver of the law. Agrippa don't even care. He's in love with his sister. We got a real problem here. But he understands the language enough for Paul to say, here's how this all plays out. In his situation, his circumstances are unpleasant, and yet he still saw it as an opportunity. Each one of us has opportunities all the time in every situation to serve as Christ's ambassadors. It's bigger than just living a good life. That kind of living a good life idea of Christianity is a pale shade of morality. It's dead. Living as Christ's ambassadors means living a life that intentionally represents the kingdom of God and deliberately seeks to bring that kingdom rule to bear here on earth. It deliberately, purposefully, proactively works to help the lost and dying world around us encounter and receive the good news of Jesus Christ and to be saved by it. It's more than living a good life. It's living a good life with the purpose of letting your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify not you, but your Father. It's not trying to impress people. It's trying to get people impressed with God. It's not trying to show people that you never sin. It's trying to show people that you have a Savior who's bigger than that sin. To bring us all in line with His kingdom purpose is what God is doing today in the church. That's what we're here for. Let's walk through these ideas. Every circumstance of life affords an opportunity to carry out our mission when we are purposeful, prepared, perceptive, personal, and proactive. First, let's look at purposeful. When we're talking about being purposeful, we are talking about being always mindful of the mission. Purposeful. Always mindful of the mission. Paul decided long before this moment what he saw as most precious, most real, and most driving in his life. As he lays out this vision, what happened to him in Acts chapter 9, he's recounting here for Agrippa and everybody who's gathered there. But he didn't just come up with this. It wasn't like, oh, king's here. I better scramble and come up with something to, to say so I can make my defense. No, he decided a long time ago what was most precious, what was driving him. It was the reality of Jesus Christ. It drove everything that Paul did. He lived every moment with his mind on his mission and his mission on his mind. As he tells Agrippa, Festus, the whole crowd, what happened to him in Acts 9, he concludes in chapter 26, verse 19, that he really had no reasonable option but to be true to the commission he received in that vision. Therefore, I have not failed to be true to the vision. This is why 
he came to Jerusalem in the first place, even knowing that danger was in store. He said just a few chapters back, I, I know I'm going to face hardship. I don't know what God has in store for me, but the Holy Spirit keeps telling me everywhere I go, it's going to be trial, hardship, prison, persecution, difficulty. But I don't care. I'm ready to face death for the sake of Christ. It's all for the sake of Christ. This is what drives him. Every thought, every choice, every action, nothing else mattered. This is why he says in Philippians 1.21, For me, everything about life, to live is Christ. If I die, awesome, I get to be with him. That's a gain, that's a win for me. Don't weep for me, Argentina. The reality is, if I die, I live even better. Don't grieve for me. Grieve for the lost, perhaps. Grieve for yourselves. But grieve only in that I'm not able to be here doing the work because I'm home dancing with Daddy. I'm rejoicing, and it gets better for me. Would that we all, as Christ followers, would take the gospel seriously enough that we would stop being overcome by the fear of death. The fear of death is natural. It's the fear of all fears. It's the big fear for all of us. And it's not that shocking. It's kind of like being afraid of the dark. We don't know what's out there. We don't know what's on the other side. I don't know what it's like to pass through that curtain. But what I do know is my daddy's there. And I can't wait to see my father. I can't wait to be in the arms of the one who died for me. This is a real life that drove Paul's every moment. You want to bring the king in? Absolutely. Awesome. Let me, hey, let me pick up my chains here. I'm going to come out because i got to tell you about Jesus. Paul, you think you can convert me to Christianity that quickly? King, I don't care if it's long or short. I just want you to know life. I want you to know Jesus. This drove everything, no matter what happened. He had already set apart Christ as Lord and Master in his life. Before he ever came to the situation, he knew one thing. I will do God's will, period. I will not shy away. I will not shrink back. You think Paul had moments of weakness? Of course he did. He was human like the rest of us. He confesses that in his letters. That's why he asked for the disciples to pray for him. And even in Ephesians, he says, please pray for me. Pray that I might declare the gospel fearlessly. Why would he need that prayer if it wasn't a temptation to shrink back? He faced it the same as the rest of us. But life for Paul was about living for Christ. If we're going to take the gospel seriously, we need to be purposeful, always mindful of the mission. We also need to be prepared Prepared, actively developing mission readiness. If we're going to take the gospel seriously, then we're going to have to see every moment through the lens of our mission. If we're not seeing every moment through the lens of our mission, then we are not taking the gospel seriously. But if you take it seriously, then you need to actively develop mission readiness. As I was preparing this, I kept thinking of the Air Force values, right? Mission first, service over self, 
excellence in all we do. Man, what a great mantra for Christians. If I can say mantra without sounding Eastern. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be mystical. But what a great thing. Mission first. Just waking you up there because I know some of you are falling asleep. Mission first. We're here for a purpose. And in the course of our mission, as part of our mission and the character of Christ in us, service over self. It's not about my comfort. It's not about whether it's dangerous or whether it's convenient or inconvenient. People are dying apart from Christ. And that is an eternal death. I've got to serve them. They need the gospel. I've got to love them to Jesus. I have to reflect the reality of Christ through these relationships. If I take it seriously, I'm going to actively develop mission readiness. Paul had prepared himself long ago for this moment. In fact, you might say that every previous moment of his life was preparation for this moment. Because he took the gospel seriously, because he revered Christ as Lord, he trained diligently to be ready for moments like this. Okay, this is now 20 to 30 years. You're talking about many, many years from his conversion in Acts 9, depending on how you lay the timeline out. But a long time has passed. You know what he did? He spent time studying God's Word, developing an understanding of how that works in life, telling other people about it, facing hardship, which sharpened him up. In other words, he trained, and he practiced, and he performed because he took it seriously. Because he revered Christ as Lord, he trained diligently to be ready for moments like this, no matter when they might come, whether he was pre, whether he was expecting it or not expecting it. He trained to be ready even when he wasn't ready. He approached it like an athlete training for the games or a soldier preparing for battle. The training happens before you go to battle. Knowing that before the moment of truth occurs, the job is to be ready to do the job. Because the mission matters. Preparing to accomplish the mission matters. Just real briefly, I'm going to ask you to turn to a passage that might throw you off a little bit at first. Matthew chapter, 20, chapter 10, you can keep Acts marked, we'll be back. But go back to the left, through the other Gospels, to the first Gospel in the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending out the twelve, later called the apostles. As Jesus is sending them out, we learned in our memory verse last week, I'm, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. That's verse 16. We're going to keep on reading through verse 19. I'm sending you out as, as like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. In other words, know how the world works. Don't put your head in the sand. Don't be foolish. But don't become like them either. Know how to do the job, know how to survive, understand what's coming, and you're in danger, but live with the heart of Christ. Verse 17, be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Check out verse 18. 
on my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Sound familiar? Sound a little bit like Acts 25 and 26? 19, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. Hold up. Did the preacher just tell us to do something that the Bible told us the opposite of? Be prepared. But here, Jesus himself is saying, don't worry about what you're going to say. You know why he's saying that? Notice what happens right after this. When they arrest you, don't worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Okay, so that means we just don't do anything and show up and God's going to put words in your mouth? No, that's not what it means at all. I think it's been abused very often by saying that. We don't have to do anything to think about sharing the gospel because when the time comes, we get in that situation and God just, boop, puts his hand in us like a puppet and starts working through it. We have a little Charlie McCarthy action. God speaks through us. Eight of you know who Charlie McCarthy is. So anyway, as we're, as we're going forward with this, we need to understand how do we take what Paul is going through here and what Jesus is saying here and apply it right now, right here in my life in 2020. Am I supposed to be prepared? Am I not supposed to be prepared? What am I going to do? Take a look at Ephesians chapter 6. Go past the book of Acts and see what Paul, same guy we're seeing in Acts 25 and 26, what does he say about this very thing? Ephesians chapter 6. Some of you are thinking, ooh, armor of God, great. I know this verse. I hope you do. Ephesians chapter 6, he is talking about the armor of God. Makes sense considering what Jesus said in Matthew 10. So you can see how it might relate because he's talking about, Jesus is talking about sending them out, sending us out as well as sheep among wolves. In other words, you're in danger. The people you are trying to minister to see you as prey. Whether by choice or by instinct, they want to devour you. 6, starting with verse 10. Finally, Paul writes, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against this, the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, here he, de he details this armor, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. You've got to have truth. It holds everything together. You've got to have the breast piece, the breastplate of righteousness in place. That righteousness guards and protects you. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, your feet have a job to do. They have to go forward with the gospel. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, trusting in God's strength to protect you. And with this shield of faith, you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, okay, knowing that God's salvation comes by His grace, through faith that He gives you, not through any works of your own. This is how you protect your mind. Think the right thoughts in regard to salvation not being from you, but from God. 
But notice the last part. I read all of that just to get to this last part of 17. And the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon here. Everything else is protective. This is offensive. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In other words, just like Jesus said in Matthew 10, when the time comes to go on the offensive, the Spirit will do the work. The Spirit will swing the sword. But you've got to put the sword on. The sword is the Word of God. You've got to get into the Word. You cannot call yourself a Christ follower and neglect the Word of God. You cannot. Because you're not picking up the shield so that the Spirit can swing it in your life. So then when it's time and you're brought before, in his case, governors and, and uh, kings, in your case it could be teachers, cousins, relatives, the person at the gas station, that, that person who's been stalking you on Facebook and really, really wants to know about Jesus but doesn't know they want to know about Jesus. What are you going to do when it's time to talk? You don't have to do anything. The Spirit will do the talking. But you better have had the sword for him to swing. If you don't focus diligently on the word, you will not have the sword. And the Spirit's going to show up saying, hey, I want to talk through you, but dude, you're not giving me what you're supposed to be giving me. You didn't put on the sword. This is important. We have a role. The Spirit does the work, but we must prepare. The Spirit does the work, but you provide the sword through diligence in the Word. Diligence in the Word. It's not about being some super-Christian expert. All right? A lot of us will feel that way. Well, that's for pastors. That's for overseers and elders and evangelists and missionaries like Keith and Heather. You guys, you just have some superpowers. You can do things. God says, you know, that it's about spiritual gifts. No, he doesn't. That's not what he said. Let's not get crazy. There are spiritual gifts. God gifts us to do his work. But he doesn't only call some people to carry the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. All of us are called to be witnesses in our Jerusalem and Judea, and to the ends of the earth. I learned an important lesson about strength training as a football coach when I was at Michigan Lutheran. I, I, I got to their very small weight room, smallest weight room you could ever imagine. It's this little closet area back behind here is about the size of the weight room we had. I mean, it was just tiny. Not much there. But there was a sign on the door that changed the way I thought about strength training and strength culture in athletics and in coaching. It was a very simple sign. It said there's no substitute for strength and no excuse for the lack of it. And I thought, wait a minute. What about the people that aren't strong? That's not fair. Some people are stronger than other people. And it occurred to me, as I'm sure has already occurred to you, because you're all smarter than I am, Strength is a function of reps. You don't have to be talented to be stronger tomorrow than you are today. You don't have to be talented or super knowledgeable to start picking up heavy things and do it over and over again. Right? 
Cole Graham would say, you don't need weights, just go pick up some trees. Or come carry some logs. He lifted plenty of weights too. Uh, don't let him carry kids. The reality of it is, the more you do the thing, the better you're going to be at the thing. If we're talking about lifting weights, it's not about whether, how much you start out with. It's about what are you going to do about it. Are you going to keep showing up? Are you going to show up and do it and show up and do it and show up and do it? If we're talking about learning the Word of God, it's not about where you start. It's about do you show up and do it? Are you going to open the book? Are you going to read the book? When you're listening to all of the podcasts that you like to listen to, are you going to keep listening to Jordan Peterson? Are you going to listen to sermons about the Word of God? There are a lot of good sermons out there. And then we've got some from real life too. But there's some, you know, you can listen to Tony Evans or Alistair Begg. You've got some great preaching that you can put into your life. But you don't need to just hear from preachers. You need to spend some time alone with God yourself. He wrote you a love letter. If you take the gospel seriously, you will take the word of God seriously. And you will prepare for the mission. When, when Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to say, the Spirit's going to do it in you. That's a function of preparedness. Don't worry about what you're going to say, because every moment of every day, you're focused on mission, and you are getting ready. You're preparing and preparing and preparing. And that's the same thing I would say to an athlete, a football player, a baseball player. Once you get out here in the middle of the play, it's too late to think. You have to have already practiced and trained and developed muscle memory so that the truth is so ingrained in you that you can't do it wrong. How many of you heard the, the old adage, don't practice till you get it right, practice till you can't get it wrong? That's how we need to approach our understanding of God's word. I learned a verse once. So I got it. I'm good. Really? Because I've forgotten more verses in my lifetime than I could possibly imagine. Memorized lots of things as a kid. But if I don't stay in it today, I'm no good. There was a time when I could play some softball for a little while. But my son's laughing because he's seen me play. I can't get down on a ground ball anymore. That's a joke. Why? Because I don't do it. If I don't do it, my sword gets rusty. Don't let your tools get rusty. Keep them working. Prepared is actively developing mission readiness. I've got to move a little more quickly here. Um, we also need to be perceptive. Perceptive, evaluating every situation in light of the mission. Now notice as Paul is doing this, see how he understands who he's talking to. He doesn't try to talk to Festus this way. He's perceptive about the fact that he can't talk to Festus this way. He won't get it. But he does speak to Felix a particular way because Felix is married to a Jewish woman. Felix has been around. He understands things, so Paul can talk to him a certain way. Festus isn't that guy. Agrippa shows up. He's a Jewish guy with a Jewish wife slash sister. And as they're dealing with this situation, he can talk to them in a certain way. He's perceptive. He's evaluating all of this in light of the mission. How do I best approach this relationship in order to reflect the reality of Christ? Regardless of their ungodliness, they understand the Jewish law and the prophets so he can speak freely. Read the room. 
It's kind of like COVID. Everything we do these days seems to be filtered through the coronavirus lens, right? Some of you are like, oh, he's talking about coronavirus. Isn't that how we all feel a lot of the time? It's a pandemic everywhere you go. You see masks, you see signs, all these kinds of things. And where you don't, you also see people getting sick and dying. And regardless of how you feel about the politics of it all, you can't deny that 2020 is defined by this pandemic. We need to approach our mission the same way. That we are diagnosing every situation in light of the reality of our mission in order to bring the gospel to people and people to the gospel. My brother has always liked a poem. It's posted actually, I think, on, on uh, 19 going down toward Napanee. It says, Life is short, death is sure, sin is the cause, Christ is the cure. Your mission is to understand the reality of the situation be aware and observant and deliver the only cure there is to those facing certain death. Perceptive, evaluating every situation in light of the mission. Paul also gives us a good example of being personal. Personal. Engaged, passionate, authentic, and open. Engaged, passionate, authentic, and open. Paul couches the truth of the gospel in his personal experience on the Damascus Road. He tells the story, he draws them in in the process, and now that his personal experience has their attention, he lays out the gospel. But he does so respectfully through the relationship God is using his personal story to develop. Now, we need to be really clear. This is where sharing our personal story is valid and important. But understand that our story is not the gospel. When you tell somebody your experience of knowing Christ, you have only told them your experience of knowing Christ. You haven't told them the truth of how they can know Christ. Our story is not the gospel. The gospel is not a subjective experience. If it were, then... We could come to Christ lots of ways. What's true for you might not be true for me. And there's no absolute way. But the Bible doesn't give us that wiggle room. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. There is no other option. The significance of our story is our own interaction with the reality of Christ through the gospel. Paul gives us a good model to use in developing our story as the framework just to give a framework, what does the frame do for a picture? It holds it in place so that you can see it. It puts it on display. My story is like the frame for the masterpiece of the gospel. It presents it. And, and the example that Paul gives us here covers three things that we can see. He, he shares with them their story, his story of who he was persecuting Christians. And then he shares the vision he receives on that Damascus road. And then he explains to him, ever since then, I've been true to the vision, and this is what has happened since. That's a pretty good way for us to frame our own story. I would encourage each one of you to prepare yourself to be ready to give an answer by maybe taking time to write out for yourself, it may not be for anybody else, your story. What was my life like 
before Christ. Now some of you, you, you grew up and you can't remember a time when you didn't trust Jesus. What was it like before you realized the power of that? Secondly, what happened in my life? What were the steps, the events that led to me receiving Christ? What did I do? What did I think? What happened that caused me to encounter Jesus in a real way? that I could enter into a relationship with him. And then third, what has happened since? What has Christ done in my life? Now that I'm in Christ, what does that mean? What is it doing for me? Resist the urge to try to say, well, before I knew Jesus, I was a terrible person and I lived this life of debauchery. If that's your story, great. But for some of you, that's not your story. Don't dress it up. Don't try to make it a bigger testimony. You were dead in your sin, no matter who you were. Okay, your details might be different, but we're all equally dead apart from Christ. And when you tell the backside of it, what happens after I'm in Christ, don't try to dress that up either. You know, God, God doesn't need you to improve on his work. He doesn't need you to say, man, ever since I've known Jesus, I've just been happy and everything's good and I no longer have headaches and my allergies went away and my dog no longer wets on the kitchen floor and, and everybody's good, my children always obey and I never have any doubts or fears or struggles. That is probably a lie. You're not winning anybody to Christ by lying and trying to say that your life is better than it is. But you know what? I was dead. Now I'm alive. And while I still deal with depression and struggles and temptation and fears, I have hope in Christ. And none of the junk that I deal with now compares to the glory that is going to be revealed as I've come to fullness in Him. And the Holy Spirit is changing me daily. Be honest. We've got to be real about it. <coughs> Excuse me. If we're going to be personal, we need to be engaged, passionate, authentic, and open. Don't try to tell just the parts of your story that are comfortable for you. Let it be real. Paul gives us that model. It's worth following. Lastly, see that we need to be proactive as Paul was proactive. Proactive. Eagerly seeking out mission opportunities. Paul is looking for it over and over again. Everything that he does, everywhere he goes. How can this be a gospel conversation? Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's an actual conversation, sometimes it's preparation for a conversation later. Notice he didn't go into big detail with Festus, but he set the table with his character. So that when Agrippa shows up, that conversation becomes something Festus can hear. God will put things in your path. He's preparing that path specifically for you. You need to be proactive and eagerly, I need to desire it, seeking out mission opportunities. I need to look for them. Paul could have seen this just as a defense before kings, but it wasn't about Paul. It was about the mission. It was about Christ. When Peter says, in our memory verse for today, 1 Peter 3.15, he writes, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Earlier edition of the NIV said, Set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for, your, for the hope you have. 
but do this with gentleness and respect. When Peter says that, <clears throat> excuse me, he says, be prepared when someone asks. That doesn't mean that we should wait around sitting on our hands with our mouths shut until somebody explicitly says, hey there, uh, I think I may be doomed to hell and I'm looking for a savior. Can you tell me about Jesus? Probably that's not going to happen. So be proactive. Look for it. We need instead to be proactively using our purposeful, prepared, and perceptive mindset to do what we see in Ephesians 5.16. Make the most of every opportunity. If you remember the King James, it says, redeeming the times, for the days are evil. We need to take advantage of every opportunity because the devil is at work. The church is here to be at work. Don't get comfortable because you're here on a mission. Let's wrap this up. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Set Him apart. Set Him apart as the most central, most precious, most ultimately real and authoritative thing in your life. Recognize that this isn't some religious game. This is life and death. So keep your mind on your mission. Be purposeful. Always be prepared to give answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. Because you realize the gravity of the message of Christ, ready yourself diligently so that you'll be able to take advantage of every opportunity. Be prepared and be looking for those opportunities. Keep your eyes open and your head on a swivel. Stay observant and aware of what's going on. Learn to read the room. Be perceptive. And Peter says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Do everything with love. Treat people as precious bearers of God's image. Care deeply. Live honestly. Share openly. Be personal. And don't fail to be proactive in seeking opportunities because when we take the gospel seriously, we see every moment through the lens of our mission. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, you have given us a mission. With this mission, you have given us all that we need in your word and your indwelling spirit. You give us the power to be able to stand before governors and kings and teachers and friends cousins and strangers and live purposefully, proactively, perceptively as ambassadors of Christ. Help us always to take the truth of the gospel seriously. Let it drive us. Father, we pray together, send us out. These things we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.